Today's scripture reading is taken from Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9 through 12. If you'd like to follow along in our Red Pew Bibles, we are on page 1004. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is the word of the Lord. Before we head into this, I just need to give you a quick warning about this uh, section of chapter six. It's um, kind of heady and it's kind of deep. And just to like let you know, like it's also kind of a very hard-hitting warning. Uh, so in the beginning, it might seem kind of almost negative, and then it shifts around verse nine to when the author like calls people beloved. Uh, but before that time, it's, it's actually going to be kind of heavy. So just to forewarn you about that. Um, knowing that, we have to ask a couple questions about ourselves in terms of uh, what, what this uh, section of Scripture, uh, who is this warning, is one of those questions. And how is their spiritual condition uh, described, those who are receiving this message? And it seems to me that the author is describing people that cannot be restored to repentance, that it will be impossible for them, uh, as verse 4 says. Now, prior to us moving into these uh, verses, a lot of uh, people use these verses in terms of uh, debating what people call eternal security. Uh, some theological phrase there. And so there are three big schools of thought in terms of how people interpret verses 4 through 6, and I'm going to share these interpretations with you. The first big school of thought um, in regards to verses 4 through 6 is the belief that people uh, became genuine Christians, but then they, they fell away and they lost their salvation. And so this is the big theological word, soteriology, the, the study of salvation. And so this is some of the stuff that I'm attempting to equip our church with in regards to soteriology, Christology. And so people who believe this sort of view use this as a key passage for themselves to defend their belief, verses 4 through 6 of Hebrews 6. Now, there is another camp that definitely opposes this view, that they believe that, you know, you're once saved, you're always saved, your salvation doesn't move. And what they'll debate with is John chapter 10, verses 28 through 29, and they'll read this, I give them eternal life and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Then the people on the other side of the camp will come back and say, well, what about Matthew chapter 24? And starts in verse 10. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures in the end will be saved. So this is saying droves are going to fall from the faith. But the ones who endure to the end, those are the ones that will be saved. And so you, you see kind of like this tennis match where the theological volley keeps going back and forth between the camps. And they'll say like, well, what about this? And what about that? I'm just throwing out that camp for you. I'm not telling you where I land. 
Second one is this, the second school of thought is this, that this is all actually just a hypothetical warning for Christians. And this hypothetical warning is for people who have an authentic faith in Jesus Christ, that this isn't something that real Christians would ever do. You know, the falling away. But if they did, which they won't, this is what would happen. I know, kind of weird, but this is a school of thought. The third school of thought is actually my leaning. And you don't have to lean with me. You can decide this for yourself. This is just where I personally land in terms of interpreting, interpreting verses 4 through 6. I think that this is describing individuals who have shown an outward sign of being influenced by Christianity, but they really aren't Christians. And so an example of this, a classic example of this, is Judas Iscariot who hung out with Jesus for three years, but he looked part of that family of faith, but really was never that part of family to begin with. So some professing Christians will will not persevere in their profession of Christ to the end of their lives. And this is what I'm seeing with someone like Judas. So hopefully the warning is not to discourage us from our faith, but it's actually to apply it to our lives, to to look in the mirror and to see where we're stuck in regards to spiritual maturity or if we're on the path to spiritual maturity, which we talked about three weeks ago. And that we we would really evaluate whether or not we truly do belong to Christ and live lives that are spiritually and morally careful and not careless. Now, what a, one of the evidences of a Christian is that we live holy lives, that we don't live common lives, because the antonym to holy is common. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19, Paul writes this, The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone whose name names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. When we're born again, we will strive to live a holy life. We won't persist to live a life of sin. And many have a belief in eternal security. That, you know, once saved, always saved. But there are also many in that camp who are not living like it. So the question is, are they really saved? The conduct of our lives is evidence of our salvation. Persistent living that is consistent with our faith is concurrent with our faith. The retention of salvation is not based on that persistence, but there is evidence of our salvation in the continuance of our faith. John chapter 8, verse 31. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And so that's kind of the background I want to draw for you guys in terms of the school of thought and things like that before we enter into these verses. And so here we go, verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit. And so there's these key words in here that I want to point out to us. Enlightened. Meaning that there's been an exposure to light, that that we have experienced something. And in in this case, it's an encounter with Jesus Christ. That people who encountered Jesus Christ preferred Christ over Judaism. Preferred Christ over paganism. They chose Jesus. 
And so their belief is in Christ. Their perception of the truth is an intellectual one. It is making sense to them in their head. The Bible is making sense. What they're hearing people say and preach is making sense to them. And so they were determined to live a Christ-like life, but it doesn't mean that it changed from their head into their heart, soul, and spirit, that it is up here. And so still an outsider, even though they are enlightened, even though they know it here. And then there's this next phrase, tasted the heavenly gift. That they tasted the gospel. They got a taste of it, but it wasn't life transforming. They just kind of gave it a try. But it wasn't something that moved them to live a persistent life after God. And so it's like that soil that is described in Luke chapter 8, right? Chapter 8, verse 13. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. That it was just a taste, a spiritual taste, but no life-transforming change that was persistent and consistent. And then there's this third phrase here, shared in the Holy Spirit. And so some of us may have the question, how can someone share in the Holy Spirit without being a Christian? How is that possible? Here it is. Where one has known the influence of God's Spirit in their lives, but they're still not part of the family of God. They're convicted of their sins. They believe in Orthodox Christianity, just like Judas, just like demons, but it's not long-lasting. They're, they're like demons who, who have spiritual gifts, who have orthodox beliefs. I don't know if you know this, but demons have orthodox beliefs. And they know who Jesus is, but they don't have that love. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Just because certain things are said and certain things are done, and certain things are known and experienced does not mean that a particular person is in the family of faith. The scriptures say many will say, many people follow. Many people will follow this spectacular, but that is not the evidence of faith. Remember the feeding of the 5,000. There's thousands of people there who witnessed this miracle. And John records this for us in John chapter 6, verse 66. After this, after that miracle, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. See, they heard Jesus' teaching. They experienced what he did, but they were not in the family. Verse 5, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. They, they found God to be faithful to his word and to whom the word of God was pointing to, pointing to Messiah, but they still fell away. Verse 6, and they have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So after all of that, after the enlightenment and getting a taste and experiencing the Holy Spirit, after all of that, is it all that surprising that it would be impossible to be brought back to repentance if you did not repent even though you experienced all those things? And so the author of Hebrews is pointing out these apostates. 
that these guys' apostasy, it is intentional, it is public, it is continuous, and they are willfully renouncing Jesus Christ. They are aligning with the enemies of Jesus Christ, even though they have been influenced by the gospel. And so we know people like this, do we not? Where they live a life for a certain amount of time and, and they fool us. They fool us into believing, yes, they are a part of the family. And sometimes they even fool themselves. And I point out to someone like Judas. Judas, who followed Jesus Christ for three solid years and had everybody fooled around him. Actually, people thought, out of all the 12, he's the brightest. He's the one. Let's have him handle all of the finances. Let's have him be the one that directs all these things. And so people who are professing Jesus Christ, but are indeed not possessed by Jesus Christ. It is impossible for them, those apostates, to be brought back to repentance. They, they've turned back to the, their backs to the very truths that will bring them to repentance. They, they heard everything. They were enlightened. They got a taste. They did everything. They were baptized. They taught the Bible. But no more interest in the gospel at all. Enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come. I mean, what else can you experience? What else can you know? What else can you do to get closer to God? I mean, they received everything, but then there wasn't a true repentance and therefore they could no longer repent. That's why the author of Hebrews writes today, if you hear his voice, today, because you can't presume that later is going to come. Today, if you hear, you have to act today because later is not guaranteed. So here's a description of people who at one time professed their faith. They acknowledged an, an influence from the gospel in their life. They identified with Jesus Christ but who are now deliberately and openly denying Christ. And this isn't talking about our occasional fall into sin, which we all experience, because that is just the Christian pilgrimage. You know, that the valleys and the, the peaks, like we, we just go through these valleys and peaks. That, that's our pilgrimage. That's normal. This is a description of those who renounce Christianity by their word or by their life, and this is apostate. And sadly, you and I know too many people like this, don't we? And sadly, even though they at one time appeared to have a relationship with God, it seems to me that they weren't ever really part of the family of God. That I've had people in my life that have invested into my life with God and spoken into it and prayed for me and taught me things. And to look at their life now, that they're so far from God. Even denying him, saying like, I, I got fooled back then. I don't know why I believed those things. And we hear about this over and over again, even with celebrities or whoever it was. Like they were once these people who were singing about God and praising God. And then they're on the far side now, like denying it completely. And saying like, that was all dumb. This is what John has to say about that in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, 
that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Verse 7 and 8. Verses 7 and 8. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be buried. And so here's this agricultural illustration that the author is writing for us. It's describing those who continuously sit under the gospel and they're faced with the fact that there are these eternal consequences to all that they're hearing, all that the good news is presenting to them. And that all who are present to hear the word of God don't all receive the same results. Because one field, you hear the same thing and you receive blessing. And this other side, you receive the same thing. You're hearing the same thing, but it's all thorns and thistles. That one life produces an abundant life, and then this other, you hear the same thing, but it's barren land. And both of these camps are hearing this word, but one is built on the sand, and then the other is built on the rock. Both hear, but one puts the word into practice, and the other doesn't. And you can read that in Matthew 7. And so just because something is said, and just because something is in someone's head, doesn't mean that there's an actual change in their life. Because even demons know the same things that you and I know about Orthodox Christianity. Even demons believe that. And they do things that you and I can do. So, you and I, we can experience enlightenment. But we can still not be converted. And I liken it to like dating. But you didn't fall in love and get married. You're still dating. Or like if you take on some sort of hobby or sport that you have all the gear to do that stuff, but you never take the field. You never play it. Or in this case of the church, you attend church and you go to church, but then the spiritual fruit is lacking. And I'm really kind of disappointed and I'm, I'm fearful and sad at times at what the church has done to itself. Because... I've fallen prey to this as well in terms of like sharing the gospel and then telling people that, you know, as long as you say certain things in a certain way and pray certain things and you believe it in your heart, then you're all right with God. When in actuality, that may not be true. We can't say and believe we'll be in heaven when we live and we think like we're in hell. So the real question is, how is your communion with God? And in that communion with God, has there been a radical change because you have been in the presence of God? What does your field look like? Is it full of blessing or is it full of thorns and thistles? Is it full of life or is it barren? Now, I'm not saying like it has to be a tropical rainforest, right? Like I'm not, I'm not saying like, oh, it has to be full of orchard. It has to be like the, the Amazon or something. Man, I'd take a few blades of grass and I'd be happy. Right? Like, amen. Thank you, Lord. Like, as long as it's not barren and it's not like thorns and thistles, I take a healthy blade of grass and I'm good. Because if there's something there, then you have a relationship with God. No matter what it is. Great. Blade of grass. Cool. Hallelujah. Take it. 
Well, maybe you're like the prodigal son, where you're returning, where there's still a place for you if you repent, and the proof of God's grace in your life is that you are here, and that God's compassion is for you because you're here. You're listening to this. You're, you're, you're getting that enlightenment. It's just, what do you do with that now? Verse 9, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. So you notice that, that move from serious warning to encouragement, and the author uses this term beloved, which is the only time you'll find it in this letter to the Hebrews. This is the only time, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 9, that he uses this term. And so you notice the tone change from verses 4 through 6 um, uh, as to not being so positive but it's the, the reason why the author does that is he's just so concerned about people's spiritual well-being. So he's writing so serious. And then the author is giving them the whole counsel of God here. He's not holding back things because he's so concerned. But then he's shifting it now to say, like, I'm going to point you towards hope now. I'm going to point you towards hope. This is not a hopelessness thing. This is a hopefulness thing. And the writer addressed these apostates here, verses 4 through 6. And then he's moving to address the beloved, verse 9 telling them to feel sure of better things. That this assurance of better things is not founded on, on your commitment, on what you do, but because of God's character. And he tells us that God is not unjust. Verse 10, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And so this is the nature of God, that God is not unjust, that God is just. God recognizes those who are falling away. God recognizes those who are drawing near. And it's in God's character to see you for who you are and what you do. That he does not overlook the work that you do, no matter how big or even how small it is. That he sees your very heart in the things that you do, no matter how big or how small. That you are not forgotten. He remembers you. That you are seen by him. You're not just a number. That every tangible and practical expression of faith is remembered by God as well as expected by God. And you notice the phrase here, as you still do. It's speaking of a continued help. Not just a once in a while type of thing that you and I do, but a continual extension of kindness to our brothers and our sisters that we carry through when we give help, that we keep doing it. Galatians chapter 6 verse 9. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. How do we know we indeed belong to the family of God? We live like it. We, we love each other. 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life be, because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. 
So we move from evidence of our salvation, that God sees everything. He sees all the ways in which we love his people consistently, continually. And then we move to application in verses 11 and 12. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is how we apply chapter 6 of what we just heard. The first thing is we show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, that there's an earnest continuance. We work on that. That the foundation of our salvation is Christ's atonement on the cross. And the evidence of our salvation is that we continue in our faith. The second thing, other than the continuance in faith, that you may not be sluggish. So the second thing is don't be lazy. Don't be careless. Don't be lazy. Don't be careless about the word of God and how it instructs us on how to live our life. And the third thing here is be imitators of those who through faith and patience. So practice faith, practice patience. That's the third thing that we're supposed to do. Then the writer points to a great example of a person that's able to do all of those three things, who was earnestly continuing, who was not lazy, who was practicing faith and patience, and it's Abraham, verses 13 through 15. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Heed the warnings of chapter 6. Believe in God's promises of chapter 6. Imitate Abraham, who practiced earnest continuance, who did not practice laziness, and he practiced faith and patience. And God keeps his promises. And so this is what Romans has to say about Abraham. Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 19. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness." We as Christians, hopefully, we don't practice doubt. We are people who practice faith, just like Abraham did. We practice faith in God, whom we know makes the impossible possible. And so maybe you find yourself in a state of worry this morning, or fear, anxiety, doubt, guilt. I want to encourage you to just sit with God before you have lunch today, that you would commune with God earnestly, that you wouldn't be lazy about it, that you would actually do it, that you would practice patience, that you would practice faith, because sometimes it takes longer than just an hour before lunch, that if you don't hear from him this morning, try again tomorrow and the next day and the next day, that you would set aside time to invest in communing with God God who sees everything. Now we know one of God's character traits is being just, according to Hebrews here. And then verses 16 through 20 give us another character trait of God. 
For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desires to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The, the, the writer reminds us that God is just, and in these closing verses, we're reminded that God keeps his promises. He does not lie. God confirms his promises with an oath. Now, when we take an oath, typically what it means is that we're appealing to the highest power. So when someone takes office and they put their hand on the Bible and they're taking an oath, it's appealing to a higher power so that they can remove any controversy as to what is happening, that they are appealing to the highest power possible. So in our culture, it is not uncommon to see, take, see people take those oaths on Bibles. The problem with that is that we've made a mockery of those oaths because people don't always keep the oaths that they make. So it's not as serious as what the people in Hebrews are reading here because at the origin of these oaths, it was meant to be looked at in such a serious way that this is a serious declaration and this is going to happen and there's no higher power than this. And so what the writer is saying is that God swears upon himself because there's nothing greater, no one greater to swear upon. So he's taking that oath upon himself. Now, of course, an oath is only as good as the character making that oath. And so the author, again, points to God does not lie. He's keeping his promises. And we can also look back to Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, where it reads, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man, that he should change his mind? Has he said, and, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? That's the character of God. You can trust that. And so this oath that God has taken upon himself has produced two unchangeable things according to verses 18 and 19. The first thing is that we have fled to God for refuge. Now we look out into the world and there's so much hopelessness and, and people are trying to fill it with different things, whether it's like their works or their own generosity or their own resources or whatever it may be. They're trying to fill this void of this hopelessness. But the sad thing is that we still find people who seem to have everything in life still experiencing hopelessness. Do rich people not kill themselves? Are rich people not addicted to opioids? There's still hopelessness, even though they have all the stuff that we can imagine in the world. But here's the unchangeable thing, that with God we find refuge. No matter how hopeless you are, you find refuge in God. And here's the second unchangeable thing that we find. There's hope in God. In him there's hope. That's verse 19. That our hope is God, that that, that is a sure and steadfast anchor for our soul. That our hope is fixed on the character of God. That God brings us from that realm of hopelessness to that of hope. Lastly, I want to point out in verse 20 this word forerunner. That Jesus did more than any high priest could ever do because 
the high priest, the most that he could do is, is go to God as a representative into the Holy of Holies, and it was behind that curtain. And that he could deal with God in terms of presenting the, his own sins as well as the sins of the people. But then Jesus Christ as the forerunner, that the Lord Jesus Christ goes where he allows us to enter with him. Therefore, that curtain was torn. That there is no separation between us and a holy God anymore. That God's presence is with us. God with us, Emmanuel. That God brings us with him. That we are secure in that relationship with God because of Jesus Christ. Now there are people here who need to get right with God. And maybe you don't know God at all. Or it's just that you don't know God all that well. And I want to encourage you that today is the day to take the step to rely on Jesus Christ because tomorrow is not guaranteed. Later is not guaranteed. And there are others who know things about Jesus Christ, that you've been enlightened, that you've tasted, that you've experienced the Holy Spirit, that maybe you even live like a Christian, but you're lazy about it. Maybe you've been trapped in this Christianity thing as a religion for too long. That you're just kind of moving along with the sacraments or church attendance or church service or church giving. When Jesus Christ desires communion, intimate communion with you. Not so much that you're doing all these things or saying these things or whatever you're doing. It's not about religious actions, but it is about a exercising and practicing of a faith as a child to enter communion with God who is our living hope. It's not about us working harder and struggling more for the church or doing this and fixing that and reaching the community and like getting all busy. It's not about being busy. It's simply about exercising our simple faith and to trust God like a child. And if he sends us to do those things, then great. But it's not for us just to like ramp up ourselves and get busy and just do it out of our own flesh. Our call is really simple. It's to be earnestly continuous, continuing on your faith journey. It's to not be lazy. Don't be lazy about it. It takes work. And to just practice that steadfast patience and faithfulness. Steadfast, patient, faithful obedience to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for your word and we ask, Lord, that um, you bless your church. God, we, we need you. Some of us need to know where we stand if we are indeed like a Judas, that we're just kind of playing along, but we're not really in the family. Would you show that to us so that we have an opportunity to repent? In Jesus' name, amen.